Hi, I'm Sean O. McCarthy, founding editor of The Comics Comic, found wherever you can type The Comics Comic into your electronic devices. Welcome to Last Things First, the show that asks comedians about the historic lasts and firsts in their lives as their comedy careers have blossomed, from young people's dreams to adult people living those dreams, or still dreaming. Questions both big and small are asked and answered. It's hopefully both amusing and illuminating. Kyle C's first caught my attention in the 1990s when we were both getting started in the Seattle comedy scene. He already was headlining clubs as a teenager then, and he parlayed his youthful exuberance and success into scene-stealing bit parts in movies such as 10 Things I Hate About You and Not Another Teen Movie. In 2009, already the king of NACA college tours, Cease rallied his young fans to win the number one ranking in Comedy Central's stand-up showdown. Later that year, he unveiled plans for a stand-up boot camp. The latter wasn't well-received by the comedy community, even though he had the likes of Louis Anderson offering life lessons to his students. Cease noticed, so he evolved. In recent years, Cease has broadened his scope and his audience with a new one-man show, Evolving Out Loud, in which he combines stand-up comedy with transformational advice. He has taken the show to Europe and Canada, and I caught up with him in the green room of New World Stages before one of his shows in New York City. So let's get to it! So Kyle Cease, uh, first off, thank you for being here. And last things first, uh, we postponed this for a half hour. Yes. So what did you do with your extra half hour today? Well, I had flown in and, and got in extremely late last mm-hmm. night. And then I did a show this morning at kind of a spiritual center, Unity Church kind of thing. Okay. And so, and that was far away. So I kind of just needed to nap a little bit. And then I also did a little bit of meditation before things like this, uh, but not the crazy meditation. I always say that, and these were the, you know wait, what what's, I mean? wait, what's the difference between regular meditation and well, crazy meditation? I, to me, it's funny because I think there's certain things that are such loaded words like meditation or God or mm-hmm. love even, right? And I think that a lot of times when people picture meditation that they need to have a certain crystal around their neck and that they need to have their hands in a bizarre clenched position they have to sit in a certain position and for me meditation is just playing nintendo no meditation is just sitting and uh basically what i do and i i started doing this in the last few months every day i do this two hours a day every day and quite a bit of my life has changed not only internally but externally too mm-hmm. um so i sit And I just allow, you know, I just sit on a bed, you know, on the edge of the bed or whatever in a comfortable position, but not with my head in a position where it can fall asleep or anything. But I'm also not in some crazy get your legs this way or you have to be in pain when you do it kind of thing. And I just sit and immediately when I do it, um, a thought shows up and it'll go, how long are we going to do this? An hour? And it's fascinating because I always think who's talking? You know, it's just a thought, right? Right. And it goes, I don't know if I can do this for an hour. This is crazy. And I just stay there. And then another thought goes in. This is insane. We can't do it. Now, what I know is that if I hear the thought go, I can't do this for an hour, and I go, you're right, and I just get up, then my thoughts possess me, right? Like my thoughts, my brain tells me my limitation. It goes, we can't do this. And if I just believe it, then I just actually catered to what it said. So what I like to do is just sit, and all the time my mind will go crazy, right? And it'll go, I can't do this, whatever. And then you start to eventually hear another voice and another voice, and you start to realize, for me, what I experience is that I'm the space that these thoughts are showing up in, but not necessarily the thoughts themselves. Um, So all the time it'll be like, you know, I hope we do well tonight, or what are we going to do, or what if they don't like it, or Sean's interviewing me, what's this going to be like after (laughs) years of our past? What's it going to be? All these different things show up. Right. 
And eventually you realize like it's just this story of limitation. And sometimes I actually think it's, you know, it's based on my past. Like if I think Sean's coming and you and I had a past in our past, right. <laughs> these, these thoughts show up and, and it creates a limitation story of us, you know, that, that I'm someone who like, it creates what our worthiness is, you know? So for instance, if someone goes, someone sees himself as worth 40,000 a year, for instance, and just to give a number as an example, mm-hmm. and someone says to them, I have a hundred thousand dollar job for you. The person who thinks who they are as someone who makes 40,000 a year might see it as death to them, right? So they'll sabotage it. But the more you let these thoughts show up and leave, the more you realize you're the space that these thoughts are in and you really make yourself more this moment. And in this moment, you become more connected to yourself and, and worthy of being a better performer or being a better person or receiving more things. I don't know if that makes sense. Yeah. So talking about just even the thought of us talking now. Yeah. So when you put this into practice for yourself, say going back – Anytime you go back to Seattle, right? whether it's you're going to reconnect with people from your comedy past or your family past or your high school past, do you, do you have to kind of overcome those same mental blocks to go, well, people from comedy think of Kyle Cease in this box. Right. People from my family think of me in this box. Sometimes. People from high school remember me this way. Yes. So how there's do I... There's definitely... And, and there's another part of me that knows those are all stories. Right. In other words, there's other parts of me that know... the What I really know is that's all a lie. But I think that sometimes our body creates different triggers and different feelings just out of patterns. Right. right? So there's people that I went to high school with that I really feel connected to because those are people who knew me before comedy became successful for me. And often I feel very connected to them. I mm-hmm. like when I, you know, hang out with someone from high school because I feel like they loved me before. Um, and then there's definitely a long time for a couple of years I had a story in me about, oh, this person's a comic. Like they have a story about me. Right. And it really hurt for years. You know, there was a there was a time where you had written something and then Stanhope wrote something mm-hmm. and different people. And that just became this thing that was big and massively painful for me that paralyzed me for a while. And that's what started the inner journey, actually. Hmm. So, like, for me, this is really significant to be talking to you. But I'm here in a place of love. I'm not here in a place of, you know, watch this, mofo. You know, like, there's... But, <laughs> Look at me now. But there was, there was a time where we had done, for instance, our events when I was just trying this new thing, that mm-hmm. stand-up boot camp thing, and you had written that article and it it it, at that time the most i knew how to do was achieve my way out of something how to prove well watch this i'll be number one or how to you know and it was all still me reacting to fear Mm -hmm. it was all me not noticing that maybe that fear is not true does that make sense like maybe the story in me that's hurting that says i want to show you that i'm still great i want to show people that that's not true or whatever is still in me. Maybe that story inside me is that I got to prove this for myself or something like that. Sure. A lot of times we, we make up, we make up full concoctions of what is true and it's not, it doesn't even exist. It only exists in our head. Right. And I think comics strive very hard to be loved by the peers in comedy. 
And that's like our biggest thing. Like you want to be the comics comic. You want to be the comic that other comics like. The, those are opinions that I think a lot of us, not everyone, but a lot of us care about the most. Like what do the comics think? Right. For, for me, that was the case when that happened. Well, even just this weekend, I th- last night were the Writers Guild Awards. And I, th- I saw all these things in my social media feed about writers being so happy being recognized by them right. is even more significant than an Emmy or a Golden Globe because it was their peers right. who were saying, and in that moment, some, they have worth. What we're saying is, I'm under the illusion that I'm incomplete unless you like me, and I really think that's one of the biggest lies that we all live in. And I talk about it at my events a lot. Is that when we were kids, we just did what we loved. And we weren't thinking, do you like me? Are you proud of me? Nearly as much as we do when we're grown up. You right. know, you just jump up and down at Thanksgiving. You sing. You're just this little creator. And I talk about this in a lot of my stuff. But, like, as time goes on, society kind of scares you and tells you you're limited and it's not that easy. And you more and more feel less and less and you become more of a consumer because you feel incomplete. So you start to go, well, I'm incomplete. So what will get me in the moment? Right. Alcohol, drugs, approval, sex, you know, everything outside of us almost feels like an addiction. And when I went through stuff with you guys, that was the beginning of an entirely different life for me because I knew how to be a comedian before I knew how to be a person. Like when I was 12, I right. was, I was doing stand up, right? Like I was 15. I was at the, yeah. I want to go Giggles. back to the beginning first. Like when you were, even when you were eight, what did you think? Since I know you started at 12, what did you think when you were eight? So 30 I, years ago, I mean, what did I did think? a lot of stand up in classrooms at the time. My uncle worked for Gallagher. He was Gallagher's prop man. OK. And so the original Gallagher, or the original Gallagher, Gallagher <laughs> the original Gallagher, too. My brother opens for him. Um, <laughs> but the original Gallagher, mm-hmm. my uncle was his prop man. It's kind of funny because in second grade, uh, I was just, you know, kind of told that if I was quiet during class, I'd, I'd have five minutes at the end of the week to do whatever I wanted. And I did Gallagher's material. So for second graders, I was talking about sex and taxes mm-hmm. with a Southern accent. I didn't even get what I was saying. I was like, mm-hmm. women, you go out shopping. You buy us underwear that fits cardboard. Am I right, guys? And I'd pull out my dad's underwear that he didn't know I had. And I didn't even get what I was talking about. And then so every year I kept kind of negotiating with teachers that mm-hmm. can I do a little stand up? And then by sixth grade, it was my own, <laughs> my own stuff. Wait, so how, how young were you when you were first aware of like your uncle's job and that comedy was a business. It was it was an awareness that wasn't like one day I want to be this. It mm-hmm. was it was even higher than that. It's just I am this. It's like I I was really lucky because comedy was so normal in our family. My grandma was almost also a famous puppeteer. She was on the Carol Burnett show. Okay. And so my whole family just comedy and entertainment. I have another uncle that's an, a, a Grammy nominated jazz musician. Entertainment was not a thing to reach for. It was just what we did and what we were. In fact, in in junior high, often people would say to me, you know, one day you're going to be famous. And I only felt offended because I was like, I am now. I'm like doing the assemblies. I'm in the yearbook featured. Like that to me was already big. Mm -hmm. And it's funny because if we look at, you know, I'm going to be, I, I believe you're in the practice of thinking your success is later and you'll constantly be in that practice, you know, like. So, so even in junior high school at the age of 12, you weren't thinking about what you were going to be when you grew up. Right. You I thought was you were already so, in it. I was in such joy then. I was in so much joy being the kid who did the assemblies and walking by all types of groups of people and 
absolutely it's okay absolutely is it's okay okay on the podcast i just said it's okay to someone <laughs> on the podcast keep saying it yeah <laughs> it's okay kyle it's okay okay cool thank you now but we're so- doing goodwill hunting it's okay kyle. <laughs> it's okay um it's okay but when i when when i was doing it yeah it was just an absolute joy and i was getting love from different people in different brackets and whether it was band or the football team or whatever i was kind of both nerdy and a little bit bizarrely popular in a in a weird way that was not with any click um does that make sense but what did you imagine for your adult life back then this is i really didn't get to a place where i thought about my adult life i was so i i I would say both in a real state of bliss and egoically just getting so much love if i because i found if i if i showed someone a tape of me even when i was on a public access show or doing a open mic set at giggles or something like that i would get love for it it became this weapon. It became this source that I had of you. I'm, I just performed and I get love. This society is of people is, has this belief that if someone's an entertainer, so not everyone, but many people think if someone's an entertainer, you know, the way we worship everything on E and what the Kardashians are doing, they create this thing that they're less worthy. And I didn't know any of this at the time, but here I am 12, 13, 14, 15. And I'm, I could bring women over to the house at 16 and show them a video of me or whatever, and I just get love for it. And up until probably five years ago, comedy was the only thing I understood um, as a source of getting love. Mm-hmm. And what one of the reasons I started di- dying to teach comics was at one point my comedy was falling apart because I was doing hundreds of colleges on the road and got exhausted. I just got you were like the king of NACA at one point, weren't you? Yeah, I did 13 NACAs and at each one probably averaged between 50 to 80 colleges at each one. I mean, there's probably now been over a thousand colleges and they're all in the middle of nowhere and they all tell these people, you know, that these schools don't drink and don't have sex. And I, I say this on stage, but they make it so they have to because all these schools are in the middle of nowhere. So you're taking two to three flights a day. You go and you do the gig. You party afterwards. You meet the people or whatever. But you're on a high and you're not going straight to sleep right after that. And then right. the, the airport's two hours away and it's 4 a.m. And at one point I ended up doing over – I did 68 colleges in a row. I got exhausted And then in 2005, I just could go on stage and do my act in my sleep. And I was bored out of my mind. And I didn't keep creating new content. I just was like, I got enough to get love here. And I really now believe if you don't keep creating, your mind's going to creatively sabotage you. And so I would just be on stage and I was just bored out of my mind. And I thought, I wonder if you could think about it enough if you could make yourself faint. And right after I thought that, I got dizzy. And it became trauma. And then it became anxiety. Mm -hmm. It became stage fright. And at that point, I thought who I was was a comedian. And I think one of the biggest mistakes we make is we think who we are is our accomplishment or our past or our money or our body or the person we're dating. And if you th- and Wayne Dyer said, if you think that's who you are, then when it goes away, you go away. Now, this thing, all of a sudden, I created a stage fright. And it's my source of getting love. It's my source of getting any form of approval. So I'm falsely identifying that this is who I am and it's falling apart. So I went to a massive low because I thought I'm not worth anything if my comedy career isn't working. I got close to suicide. I got so, so low. And at the time, 
I, you know, I got my first Comedy Central appearance. I got a premium blend while I was depressed. And my manager said, don't blow it. And I thought, how could I blow it? And I was like, what if you faint? on premium blend and for three months i obsessed over this crazy mm-hmm. thing because you're thinking this one minute seven minute slot is the, is your life this right. is the most important thing in the world right and so for three months i sat there and just worried that i'm going to blow the seven minutes and i'm going to faint when i'm on premium blend and it'll i'm it's so egoic too because i was thinking oh they'll rerun it on like inside edition like the kid who blew it and hit his head on the stage and it was really horrible and at the time actually at one point i couldn't walk anymore I the state it went the stage fright went from off the stage to I just worried over and over that I'm going to keep thinking of fainting when I'm on stage and I just got obsessed with it and then I was like I'm going to faint anywhere and I started just thinking because you know how you can't not think of something and if your mind keeps thinking of it like this is so this and is you're what I'm thinking through. about not thinking about it right and you're and so you're thinking I shouldn't be thinking this and it gets worse and worse and worse so now, I at one point got worried that I was going to faint everywhere and I would wake up and just hate my life and everything. Mm-hmm. And then it got to premium blend. I took one time in my life, other than when I had to go to the dentist once, I took a Xanax. I did, a, I did what was supposed to be like a seven or eight minute set in like six. I mean, I flew through my material five to six minutes. I walk off stage. I find out a couple of days later they're giving me a half hour special. And I'm thinking, how, oh God, like, how can I make that good now? And at that point, I, I picked up a Tony Robbins book, and that's what started all this. And this was what, 2006? This was 2004, 2005, because I shot the half hour special. And Tony Robbins and motivation isn't what I do now and what I necessarily use, but mm-hmm. I definitely think it became a gateway drug for me right. into other stuff. But a decade before that, in the 90s, when I first encountered you in Seattle, yeah. I remember. I guess it must have been at Giggles, and you were headlining, and you were still like a teenager in a suit. And I'm like, who is this kid? How is he headlining Giggles? And how does he have all this material already? Yeah. I I think that I was really lucky because, in in a way, I got to, at first, until this stage fright thing, I Mm -hmm. got to bypass overcoming my fears because I started as a kid in other words you know when people are like I'm going to go on stage and they're all horrified of how Mm -hmm. it could go I believe that's conditioning that that happened in time because kids don't necessarily have stage fright nearly as much as adults do kids sometimes want to be in front of everybody and jump up and down and or they don't think about it they don't think about it I think it's a learned thing I think you you start to rate yourself as who you are as what people think about you but how did you how were you able to convince club owners like terry taylor and other people to like put you on stage in the beginning um let's see in the very beginning how were you able to convince people to well, put this give well, this kid a chance well the belief was that the belief in that sentence is that there was a convincing i think that that i did an open mic maybe when i was i'm guessing here 14 15 something mm-hmm. like that i had also done a place called linda's funny farm it, under an alfie's pizza in linwood okay that was run I by never, this guy jerry weisberg okay. and and it was hilarious because it was just I just was driving down, you know, 196th in Linwood and there was this Alfie's Pizza and it said comedy downstairs and like where kids soccer teams have the trophy room was like this m- small comedy show and this guy ran it. And uh, I just told him I'm a comic. I did a lot of that. I just told people I'm a comic and and I, or I want to be. And I also 
somehow didn't realize how funny this is now, but I totally used the angle that I'm a kid doing it. Like I would call radio shows and be like, I, because I noticed how much adults obsessed over that. Like, mm -hmm. wow, you're doing this and you're so young, like what you said. Right. Now at the time I didn't know it was even weird. You know what I mean? Which is why I was able to write so much because I didn't have the judgment yet that you start to learn when you're an adult. So when I started hearing adults go, wow, it's amazing you're doing this and you're so young, I started calling radio shows going, I'm a 15-year-old and I'm doing comedy. You should do a story on me. And and then all the local papers and everyone would. And you were your own publicist. It wasn't like your mom or... Totally. And I'm going to stand by that I'm still the best at it. <laughs> like that that a lot of times we have people that, that come in and want to market us certain ways. Mm -hmm. And I just, I think that I I learned, you know, when I was a kid, I did that. I I... I like when I was 15, I called the Chamber of Commerce. Like, it's funny because now I look at these things and I see how ridiculous they are, but it was so second nature to me then. Right. But I called the Chamber of Commerce when I was like 15 and I got the mailing labels from all the businesses at the Redmond Chamber of Commerce. And then I made a flyer that said, having a corporate party looking for entertainment, call Kyle Cease. And I sent it out at 15. I found like a place that automatically folds the papers and sends it out. Okay. And it was like 40 bucks or whatever. And the next thing I know, I'm doing Sears, Nintendo, Microsoft, and, and I'm doing corporates at 15, 16. How much did you charge? Uh, for some of those, <laughs> it was like... It, it was did probably, you know how much to charge? I remember asking comics that were older like brad mm -hmm. upton and saying like what should i charge for this and he was and i remember him saying like it's fun to ask because i haven't thought of this since this happened but he was like you know okay you're doing sears and i think he said if you do that you could do it for 600 or you could say like 800 for a gift certificate for it i noticed the more i charged the more they said yes <laughs> too like if i if i sounded hesitant like mm -hmm. and then i think they were kind of shocked when it was a 16 year old walking in in a suit holding a keyboard because he's going to do an impression of like Julia Child or something. Because you didn't have your picture on the flyer? I was like... What did you have on no, the flyer? No, it was just like call Kyle Cease and it had like... Uh, there was a sketch of me that that I had, like someone mm -hmm. that was... a. It was so weird, but it worked. It, it was, yeah. you know... I, I, I think that it was second nature to me to not doubt things. And then as time went on, I learned how to start doubting things mm. like 10 years ago. Right. And that's where I started learning how to be a person. And because all this stuff was all this stuff was designed to keep getting me flowing to get on stage so that I could get love. I mean, it was also so I could do this. But the other thing is that there was an addiction without knowing it to I got to get on stage mm -hmm. because that's my air. That's where I am. Connected. In this in-between period when sure. your star is on the rise, you started to get bit, bit parts, like really juicy bit parts in movies. Sure. Was that something that you were looking for, or was, were that were those opportunities that just opened up? Ten Things I Hate About You because of the was comedy. the first, well, like maybe the, one of the first few auditions I had in my life, and I took a casting director's class, mm -hmm. and she's just you know the lady who finds people for movies, and I took her class, and all my friends were like, "That's crazy! What are you doing? You're wasting your money and everything." And then a month later, the movie Ten Things I Hate About You used her, and they said we need this character, and she said, "Oh, I, I want to bring this guy in." And at that time, I didn't have a headshot or resume, anything. But I didn't know that was a problem. Again, I was oblivious to that. And I just walked into the room with this cheesy smile and, mm -hmm. and was just all happy. <laughs> it was like every line I did, I would bring myself into it, you know. And thank God I hadn't learned yet that, you know, from acting coaches, well, you better be prepared and you better have the right headshot. You, How dare you waste their time and all this stuff 
scare things that they say later because I went into that thing and I was against a lot of other people for that part in 10 Things I Hate About You, no headshot agent or anything. And I just basically did stand up in the room. And then she came back, she brought me back in with all the the directors. And now I had an audience because there were like eight people in there. And I just was on and I freestyled and everything. And they gave me the part. I moved to LA, bump into a friend of mine who's doing the movie, Not Another Teen Movie. Or he had done 10 things. He introduces me to his friend who's who's doing Not Another Teen Movie. I go up to that guy and I go, can you get me an audition for this? And and he goes, sure. And then I find out that I have this audition for the slow clapper and they have me go to the set while they're shooting the movie. Their slow clapper part hadn't been cast yet. So he's shooting the scene with like Jamie Presley and Chris Evans and, yeah. and the director's just sitting there. And I And I... I go up to him and he goes, oh, show me you doing the slow clapper. And I get like, I'm not kidding. I get like one, maybe two claps out. Mm -hmm. And the director goes, hold on a second. And he turns around and he goes and shoots the movie and kind of forgets that I'm standing behind him for like 45 minutes. And then he turns back around and he just sees me standing there. He goes, oh, yeah. And then he looks at the director and he goes, or the writer. And he goes, what do you think? And the writer goes, I love him. And he goes, all right, you're the the slow clapper. So now I got two movies. No headshot, resume. The only experience I had from the second one was that I was in the movie, the first one, which they were spoofing in the second one. You know, they were spoofing 10 Things I Hate About You. In right. this. But it was fascinating because I started just going, wow, I'm a lock. Just do this cheesy face. And and then I auditioned for a Burger King series of commercials. It was my first audition in L.A. And I booked that. And it was like a big series of commercials where yeah, this kid's on a football field and they tackle him. And it was surreal because it was just it felt really effortless. And. And it would have probably stayed there had every adult in the world not been saying to me, like, this is lucky. You're lucky. You shouldn't, you know, and I started believing I got to work harder and I got to work in meaning like it's not that easy. I got to and I believe there is an easiness and an effortlessness. And I had to in the last 10 years kind of go back to that again and, and find that playful childhood state because I went to an acting class. And started really wanting to nail parts. And they put me so far in my head and got me so scared that I wasn't going to get it mm. that I went through five years of not booking anything after that. And so it was other people who started to put doubt in your head. And the doubt led to the stage fright. Well, I, uh, the, well those are kind of separate things. But okay. the auditions, like different. So, so, in the, so when I would go to an acting class, she started saying stuff like, you know, you got to get the part totally memorized. If you you can't just go freestyle like that and go play. Up until then, I had been nailing everything, right? Like every, I mean, I even to answer one other thing, kind of that you were asking when I was like fifteen, sixteen, I I called I called King Five and asked to talk to Pat Cashman from Almost Live. Yeah, sure. Yeah, why not? And I was, he was doing all that. He was big in Seattle, yeah. and I was just like, I just left him a message, literally saying, "Hey, I'm a kid." And uh, I'm doing comedy, and I knew that worked. And he called me back and goes, "Hey, Kyle, let's let's get lunch or whatever." That next day, I went to school with a suit on, with a piece of paper taped to the suit that said, "Ask me why I'm wearing a suit." <laughs> and then everyone did, and I said, "Because I'm having lunch with Pat Cashman today." And then I had lunch with him, and he told me about all these um, different people that do voiceovers. They're like voiceover management companies and ad agencies. So I bought a bunch of Cracker Jack boxes and I made a demo tape and I put the tape inside all the Cracker Jack boxes and I sent it out to all those people. And then at 15, 16, whatever it was, I started doing also voiceovers for kids' educational games and stuff like that. But there was just this given in me that it was a given, that I didn't have to 
I didn't have to motivate myself. I didn't have to get driven. It was so naturally there. It was such a given that I, that I would get it, that it always happened because I would walk in there and, and I'd book all those things. But then just as your stand-up career is starting to fully blossom with Comedy Central, right? that's when you start to well, it, not yeah. stop believing in yourself. Well, the, so 2004, I do all those colleges. Mm-hmm. And then 2005, I start creating this bizarre stage fright. Um, and and it was just really my mind bored because I wasn't, I really believe I just wasn't living the highest me. I was able to go through the same material. I probably had three hours filed inside of me after years of doing those colleges and I wasn't fulfilled anymore. It was now just so obviously to get a laugh and not the highest me. And I, what I now look at, what I think of that as was, I think I was being called to go deeper in myself and expand and write deeper and come from a deeper place. But when you're feeling abundant and you're getting all this love and you're doing it's hard to throw out your act and it's hard to you know you're not going to because why would you 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 go up and kill or you can throw your act out and the next day totally be crappy as you're writing new material so i had this abundance going you know people often think of people who have it bad as this amazing story of like well that person had a bad childhood so you know we should all look at how amazing it is what he did. Well, having a lot of abundance thrown at you also sometimes stops you from digging deep and, and doing something better too. I mean, there's a stereotype myth of the child, the curse of the child actor. Right. Is that right. they never really know how to grow up. And when they do, they run into all sorts of personal trauma. Right. Life was very easy for me in my childhood and in my 20s. And it was, it was easy because I had mastered this thing for 10 years at that point in my 20s and would just get so much and it's fake love it's the you're a famous person love or by famous I'm being very light but you're I've seen you on my tv set love and everything and that's just enough of an addiction to not get you to go deeper you know you can go out with someone that night you can have a drink whatever and and there's enough money coming in was that was that kind of impulse that pressure to to feel love also what spurred becoming number one in the stand-up showdown? Yes, absolutely. Because what I learned from Tony Robbins was how I could change my circumstances, right? So if your circumstances are falling apart, you know, I'm, I'm, I went from suicidal anxiety to, to number one Comedy Central or in 2006, like most showed or whatever. Mm-hmm. So that, now I'm changing my circumstances, but I'm still a victim to them, right? So like, in other words, does that make sense? In other words... Right. You're falling apart. Well, there was a period where where Comedy Central did a thing every year called Stand Up Showdown, right? Where this is before the the boom that we're currently in with comedy, where they had a limited number of half hour specials, and right? They would get viewers to decide which ones should they show and who right. is the, who is the most popular one of these half hours, right? And they called it Stand Up Showdown. Yeah, and they did it for a couple of years, and you were number one the first year they did it. So or no, they had done it a few years year. before that, and but I did place in like the top either ten or twenty the year before that. But I had just gone to a Tony Robbins event, right. and Comedy Central, and Tony Robbins had taught me when and and this is great stuff for people that are in a place where they want to achieve something big. This isn't necessarily where I live anymore, but it was really a great thing. What I what he said, he, what I learned at a seminar from him was when you ask how can I. There's a given in that language that there's a way to do it. If you ask, can I, then you just get yes or no, and that's probably just enough that you won't even attempt it. 
Comedy Central had this 100 comics thing where they had the stand-up showdown and all these great household name comics are in this list. Yeah. And I'm in this list. And Comedy Central in 2009 told the public, vote on your favorite comic. Right. I find out it's funny to me now because it's so not what I would do anymore. But it was a, this is when I still thought who I am as a comic. So I better be number one because right. I won't get love otherwise, right? So um, I thought, how can I win this? And right when I thought that, my mind said, what if you do a podcast every day where you thank everybody who votes for you by name? Yeah. And <laughs> and so, yeah. A few people did similar things, yeah. Yeah, yeah. That Not specifically this, but they, they All of a sudden, drove their social media yeah. profiles by thanking I, it's people so who followed funny them. Because now my whole belief and whole thing is when you're doing that, you're – you're saying that this thing completes me. You're going to be totally codependent on the thing. You think I'm incomplete without this thing. Like a big lie that I've learned, I'd say, in the last 10 years is is a lie that I lived in without no, noticing it is when something happens, I'll be happy. I got to achieve so many of my favorite things, so many things that I'd wanted. And right when I achieved them, usually I just thought, what's next? And Jim Carrey says to audiences that he goes, I wish you could have all the things that you think you want. So you'd get that you're chasing the wrong thing (laughs) because I really believe more and more it's when I'm happy, things will happen. And when I'm happy, I don't mean giddy Ned Flanders smile. I mean, okay with yourself, accepting of yourself. Yeah. And you feel good and, and, and okay with your sadness, your anger, your, you know, and so, so when Tony, Tony had said, ask how I just was like, how can I, I, it's funny to talk to you about this now because I, I hadn't talked about it in a while, but it is it is a funny story to me now because I was just like, how can I? Okay, have a podcast where you thank everybody who votes for you by name. So I announced on Facebook and MySpace at the time, I'm in the stand-up showdown. If you vote for me, I'll thank you by name. The next day, 400 people or so write me and they go, hey, I'm voting for you in the thing. So I then did like a 10-minute motivational talk, and then I literally thanked like three to 400 names, whatever it was. Sure. And I'm sitting here going, all right, so I'd like to thank Jim Johansson and Steve whatever. And and my friends were like, dude, you're you're wasting your time. Like this has taken like 20 minutes. <laughs> just, and I, just even saying the names takes that much Yeah. Time. But what's so funny was I was thinking, yeah, and I'm making fans for life. I'm selling more CDs to them. I'm getting more tickets sold when I'm in their area. You know, or I could have a for sure day job working at a Walmart, even if it paid 50 bucks an hour, it's not worth this. But also they're enjoying this. There was some kind of fun, you know, it's not, as I said, it's not where I want to be now, but it was a really fun growing experience for me because, so I did that the first day and at the time Comedy Central was showing where we were placing each day. Yeah. So I go from 18th to 8th place the first day. So I announced to them, I'm doing this again tomorrow and you can vote each day. (laughs) <laughs> so the next day they bring all their friends in and I thank like 800 people and I go to seventh place. The next day I'm thanking like 1600 names and I go to sixth place and then it keeps doubling. Right. right? So it gets like, I, it gets to the last week. The last week I get up to second place. Jeff Dunham's in first place and he's like a hundred thousand votes ahead of me, something like that. And I got a, I got a week left and everyone's going, you know, wow, dude, that was amazing. You got to second place. It was such a given. There's no way you're catching Dunham. And so it was like, wow, you got to second place. That's amazing. Mm-hmm. And I just was like, there was a weird feeling in me. It was just like, what if we could? And it was so obsessive. And so I got to be number one mm-hmm. kind of thing. And 
the poor woman who was dating me at the time because I didn't even know anything existed but first place. Like I was just in my head. My God was first place, right? Because Tony Robbins had also said, you know, in the Olympics, first place is, you know, sometimes a one's less than a second away and first place gets the Wheaties box and the, you know, in the second place, you don't remember them. Right. So I was like, got to get first for significance because I won't be loved if I don't have that. So Jeff Dunham is 100,000 ahead of me and Comedy Central starts shifting. Like Jeff Dunham specials start airing more and they start pulling my specials off the schedule. And I just told my following another sentence that I had heard from Tony Robbins. I said, this isn't a problem. It's a test to see how bad you want it. And I just started believing everything in our life's a test to see how bad we want it, right? So, and our my fans turned into this Obama's going into the office <laughs> voting group where they were having text circles. And I'm sitting here thanking names by the thousands each day. Mm-hmm. Cut to the following Sunday. They run specials like 20 down to one. This right. is how you find out. And I get a call from the East Coast that Jeff Dunham is in second place. And I, <laughs> and I won it. I got 238,000 votes in two weeks. And... I just became so driven again, and I felt so excited about life, not knowing still who I am as a comedian. Right. Right. Like what happens after you get this. Right. So now I'm just like, and now I'm this number one guy. My my rate went up a little bit. Like I got all the stuff, and I'm like, I got to show comics they can do this. Is that where the boot camp? That's is? where it started. Okay. Because there was a part of me that did feel, I, it it did feel. After going to this event, mm-hmm. it did feel, God, like if you've ever been friends with someone who's in an abusive relationship and you can see that they can get out of it, but they can't see that, that started to be how I felt with everybody. And that's where you become this follow Jesus type guy. Right. And I didn't know I was being that. I was just like, God, everyone's stressing and they don't have to. Everyone can have number one Comedy Central specials. Right. Dude, if I can if pull you- ahead of these guys, like anyone can have this. Yeah, uh, you know you what should I mean? have the answer. I have like I have right. the answer. Don't now you want I didn't, the answer. I didn't know at the time that the factor wasn't only Tony Robbins mm-hmm. <laughs> or motivation. The other factor was I was in a low personally, and I was sitting here assuming that everyone else needs to learn this, but I forgot that they weren't in a low that they needed to overcome it. Because if I in that year had told me two years before what I was saying, two two years before me would have said you're crazy. When did you when did you realize that it wasn't stand up boot camp, but really evolving out loud was what needed to be happening? Hmm. Okay, so stand up boot camp was when I was in the motivational stage, which right. I'm really not now. In fact, I'll say the comedians' reactions to what I was doing made me leave the motivational stage because in that motivational stage, you're still a control freak. You're like, how can I have the number one Comedy Central special? Nothing else matters until I get that. But what happens if something happens that you don't have control over? Like when you wrote a blog, and I say this, I'm not now mad about it or anything, but like at the time when you wrote a blog and then comics started giving me crap, mm-hmm. and the next thing I know, Stanhope writes a blog and it gets, it kind of goes viral among the comics. Right. I, at the time, I don't know if you know this story, but I was in a hotel when, and I had just done an event with Louie that I was really proud of. I forgot comics are very cynical. Louis yeah. Anderson. Louis, yeah. Who is great in baskets. I don't know if you've seen I him. have not seen it yet, but I, I read tremendous. an article that he's amazing in yes. it. So I had so I had done a boot camp with him in Chicago, and it's the following morning, and I'm sitting with Louis, and I say to him, 
I have this thing in me where I want to get over what people think about me. And I don't know where it's coming from, but I just want to get over this. Luckily, I didn't say I want to change what they think about me. I want to get over what they think, right? right? And Louis like, maybe it's your father. It's not a very soothing voice, but <laughs> <it's>, <laughs> so I go to my hotel room mm-hmm. and there's a, there's an email that I get and it says, and there's a car that was about to take me to the airport and the email says, Hey, you con man. And it says, I read the blog Stanhope wrote about you. And I click the link and there's this blog written about me. And it was, it was from a comic I really admired and really always wanted to love me, <laughs> you know, and it was just ripping me apart. I mean, it was just so, and it was so funny, which made it worse for me because you can't, I mean, it just was, so, and by the way, I, for the first time read it again last year and laughed my ass off. And, it, but at the time I'm, I'm still wanting to get over what people think of me. Right. He writes this article and I can see that it's going viral under the article and I call the car down that's going to leave without – I tell it to leave without me. And I just decide I got to learn a new thing. I had enough Tony Robbins training in me to know I'm going to learn a new thing. So I sat in the hotel room for a week and felt this hurricane of pain. Mm-hmm. My emotions for the first four days were a nightmare. I'm just sitting in the hotel room. And the most my mind knew how to do at the time was achieve my way out of it. So I'm like, how can I have another number one? I'll prove this and all, you know, and all I was thinking is I'll show, I'll get Stanhope to love me. I'll get comics right. to say, never mind if I just have another number one special or whatever. But my mind for four days, I'm sitting on a bed and my mind is just chaos going, what if we do this? What if we do this? What if we do this? And I realized after four days, I'm just sitting on a bed. I'm fine. And my mind is going crazy separate from me. And I'm looking at these thoughts separately. I'm sitting on a bed and I've been saving my life for four days. Like I've been at war with myself. Do you know what I'm saying? Like my mind is going, what if they, they said this? And, I, you know, and I'm giving myself an right. ulcer while I'm just thinking these thoughts. Right. You're playing out, you're playing out the, the tape of scenarios that right. aren't actually happening. I'm physically you're, fine. You're feeling them. But my mind is actually triggering my body right. into this fight or flight response yeah. of stress for four days. And my mind is going crazy. And I just realize I'm a kid sitting on a bed or grown up now. I can't say kid anymore, but I'm looking at my thoughts and they're going crazy. And I'm the one looking at the thoughts. And something happened where my entire story, my thoughts, everything just kind of fell in front of me. And I felt a freedom on day four of being in that hotel that I'd never felt before. And I realized I'm just staring at a wall and I'm just, I was in bliss. Like I wasn't trying to be number one. I wasn't the guy who was a comic anymore. I was a dude sitting on a bed. And for like five hours, I just sat there feeling free. And it was so incredible. And on day five, like the sun just goes up and down. It just like, I mean, I was just so blissful that time kind of wasn't the same thing. I wasn't spending all day trying to get anywhere. I felt a freedom that I'd never experienced in my entire life. It felt better than the highest gig I've ever had or at Comedy Central Special. It was just, I wasn't my accomplishments for the first second of my life. I was just me. And on day six, uh, I flew back home. I tried to get my DVD player to play a movie and it wouldn't play it. I tried to get to play a second movie. I tried to get to play six movies. It wouldn't play anything. And then it, it played the movie Adaptation. And there's a scene in there where Nicolas Cage says to his brother, he goes, in high school, there's a girl that you really liked and she was saying bad things about you and you didn't care. And he said, why is that? And the brother said, because whatever she says about me, she can't take away from me how much I love her. Mm. And then he goes, you are what you love, not what loves you. And I just cried 
like I mean I just bawled because I understood that in a very different way than I probably would have a week before because every time you're trying to do anything or get something right you're being what people think of you you're being what they you're you're actually saying I'm in lack unless this person likes me but when you're a kid you just did what you love you were playing you were singing you just did whatever and you just allowed yourself to be whatever you needed to be so life suddenly transitioned from me being in lack unless I do well to I'm fine as is and all of a sudden I wasn't into motivation anymore I now more believe we're like helium balloons that are always trying to go up naturally Mm -hmm. but we're just sabotaging them all day by caring what the news said or what justin bieber's hair is like or what a football team did and there are things that we can't control that we hold on to so that's when this other journey started into letting go and understanding that i'm complete as is and now i just kind of let go of everything in my life that feels heavy and move towards what feels light and everything is really working out in a totally different way for me you're also trying to appeal to a wider audience and not just aspiring comedians. I would say it more like the wider audience is a byproduct of me not labeling myself. Right. In other words, I went through this phase of, well, I don't want to do just stand up anymore. And I, I, but I love comedy and I love transformation. What if I combine them? And my ego was like, well, no one's done that. My soul's like, no one's ever done that. Like, what if you create your own field and just do what you want to do? But I wasn't strategically going, this is the new field. I'm just going to say what I feel. And let whoever wants to show up, show up. And it is kind of making this, as a byproduct, a mainstream result is kind of happening from it. We had around 40 million views in videos in the last four or five months. And, you know, it's really exciting because what the things I'm doing now in those videos are much more from my heart than, Mm -hmm. than a thing I wrote so I could get love or someone else's script in a movie. You know, these are ideas that showed up out of thin air out of me. And it's much more fulfilling to live on that edge and say what my truth is and allow whatever the results are. But I'm in a place now where I I believe more when I'm happy, things will happen. But you don't care when they happen because you're happy as is. So if 38-year-old Kyle Cease runs into an 18-year-old version of you today, what what do you tell? I would say you're doing perfect. (laughs) Because I would want the fall apart. I would want the I would want to go through the Tony Robbins phase. I'd want everyone that wrote the blogs and everyone that gave me crap and everyone mm-hmm. that said those things to show up again. Because everything in my past, every accomplishment, every bad thing needed to happen. I would not take any of those things back for a billion dollars. Like it was it, it was perfect. So I'd tell I w- I would probably wouldn't even go bump into it. If I saw the eighteen year old Kyle, I'd be like, You're fine. Like, I would just be like, I'm going to stay over here in the corner and not tell him I'm here. Because first of all, I'd freak him out. <laughs> and then he'd have this whole new reality where he saw older him. Right. And he'd be like, well, so I look like that, huh? <laughs> <laughs> well, Kyle sees. thank you for, for evolving out loud today with me. Dude, I it's so good it. to see you, Sean. It, it means the world to me to be with you, man. Uh, thanks. Yeah, thanks for being here. This episode of the Comics Comic Presents Last Things First was produced by Alex Brazell at Showbiz Studios. The music by Camille Harris and Shockwave, logo by Giggle Chick. Please check out my website, thecomicscomic.com, for more interviews, reviews, and comedy news. Become a paid subscriber at patreon.com. 
I'm your host, Sean McCarthy. Thanks for listening. Last things first.